Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Today we're excited to bring you the next installment of our John Fushante interview series. John first came on the podcast back in April for the release of Unlimited Love. Then he was back a few weeks ago to pick up where they left off, discussing Chili Pepper history one album at a time. This is part two of that conversation, and it's shaping up to be a little bit different. This time around, instead of talking Chili Pepper history, John picks up his guitar to walk Rick through his pre-show warm-up. He also demonstrates how he came up with the now-classic major to minor chord changes on Under the Bridge. They, of course, talk Return of the Dream Canteen, their second number one album in six months. And they also discuss how John was able to overcome his desire to impress others with his guitar playing while recording Stadium Arcadia. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and John Fushante from Shangri-La. So there's a new Chili Pepper album that just came out. Yeah. Second one in a year? Yeah, second one in six months. Yeah. <laughs> we, we really think of them as kind of two halves of the same thing because we recorded them all at, at the same time. And I think the second one's probably like the more eccentric kind of strange one if I had to generalize. But I was looking at a list the other day that I'd made when we were trying to figure out what songs are going to make it on, you know, and what songs aren't. And, and I had a list like, Songs that feel like to me like the, my image of the second album, you know, and, and songs that sound like what I'm picturing the first album feeling like. And while most of those songs were on the album that they were on, there were songs that were second album vibe that we wound up putting on the first album and first album vibe that we wound up putting on the second album. So to me, they seem pretty balanced. 
between the two things, but I but I think the new one f- goes to further extremes, both in like yeah. heaviness and in softness and in like weirdness and all that. Than the first I think one. some of my favorites are on the second one. I, yeah, I me like, too. But I like songs on both. Yeah, that was really the the problem. Was was like seventeen songs just weren't enough to satisfy any of us. Like like, and some of your favorite ones didn't even make it on the second one. And those were, those were some of your <laughs> I, very favorite ones. I know. Yeah. So it, it was know. really it was really hard to like yeah. to satisfy everybody. Yeah. So so it, it it seemed essential to us to at least have have the two records. Yeah. Because the making is similar. It's same. It's they were all recorded yeah. at the same time. Yeah, it's hard to talk about in interviews when they're the yeah. when they were made at the same time. But as it turns out, the second one has a to me has a sort of a feeling and a sound that it could have been recorded at a completely separate time. Like mm-hmm. it, it has a to me it has a spirit of brightness and fun where unlimited love has kind of a darkness and a seriousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of the tunes that stood out to us as being like important sounding songs were some of the darker, more serious ones. Mm. And some of the ones that we felt more comfortable were saving have like a light vibe that's not absent of meaning or anything. Yeah, just more playful. But yeah, more playful. Yeah, I I see the second one as, as, I hear it as being a, a brighter vibe and a more fun vibe. I remember I, I was classifying songs as like, I just think I just said pop, f- <laughs> funk, art. I think I just made it as simple as that. Cool. Like, And there was the most of pop, there was the middle of was funk and the smallest amount was art. But yeah, and I just think we, we evenly distributed them, but I think we got better at the mixing process as time went by and that sort of gave the second record a, to me, like production-wise, sound-wise, it's, it's got a distinct sound to it. I, I would also say that if anyone liked the first album, they're going to like the second album. It's like the same diary entry, you know, yeah. that that however long, two years of writing. You yeah. guys were writing for about two years? Yeah. Oh, no, we wrote for nine months. Only nine months. nine months? Amazing. Yeah. And then the the recording, I think for like 50 tracks, we did... We did the basic tracks in three weeks of of, of yeah. everything. We did pre-production though in the studio before we started right recording for real. Right. Yeah. There was about a month of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because then by the time we we did the real recording, it it was more focused on just getting the performance. We weren't working. We weren't really working on the songs. It was just more the feel and the performance. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's historically the way we've we've always done it. It's like. We usually, when we're recording, we kind of know what we're doing by then. Yeah, it was it was different in that we were for for me in that we were in a studio, even though we were just basically there to work out arrangements with yeah. you. Like usually, you would have been in in the rehearsal studio yes. with us, and instead we were here at Shangri La. Yeah, yeah. How did you decide to release the second album so soon after the first album? Well, I think our our original idea just wasn't possible. I, Anthony. Uh, and Flea really wanted to just release a giant album. It would have been like a four everything four four record wow. set and two double CD. And they were really big on that idea. And it just turned out that wasn't going to be possible mixing wise. We didn't have enough time to get an album out before the tour was scheduled in order to do that. Not to mention the record company wasn't crazy about that idea, and it seemed like a pretty wild thing to do. But I think they like the idea just because nobody does that. So yeah. 
the the second best idea, which I, I, I'm pretty sure Anthony even wanted when he found out we couldn't do that, he was like, well, could we have the other album come out two months later? Wow. It was a big so thing. So basically he, as soon as possible was the, yeah. the idea. So six months wound up being the reasonable thing and the possible thing yeah. because mixing-wise, we needed that extra six months. Oh, let's talk about the covers. I, I don't know anything about this, but I know that the cover of the first album is one kind of image, and the cover of the second album is a very different kind of image. Yeah, and I, I felt like that wound up being good. It wound up reflecting the the musical difference that I feel in the two albums as well, and kind of kind of a heavy thing. Yeah, the first cover came from Anthony had an idea that the asterisk with a black background would be the basic idea in some kind of neon light, but what he was getting from the record company wasn't fulfilling his vision, and so he passed it on. To Marcy, my wife, and they started talking about it, and we started taking these references. There's this Christian church that you see from the freeway going into Hollywood from the valley. It's a it's a big sort of neon sign, and that wound up being kind of the basis. Then we, you know, Marcy, got a help, some help from somebody she knows designing what the sign would look like, and then it got passed on to some other people who who actually built the sign to be photographed. Then we had people to move the sign somewhere where it would be good to to shoot it. That might've been the, the top of the Roosevelt uh, Hotel. Cool. So there's a physical, there is a physical object. It's yeah, not a CGI. Exactly. Cool. So yeah, so that was the first, that was the first cover. And then the second one, we, we had done a video uh, with these animators that Marcy knows, these French animators. Tammy and Julian, who did a video for Poster Child and a song from the first record, and they didn't have much time to do it. It winds up looping at a certain point. It was because releasing two records in so quickly like this in succession, we've had to rush through several stages of the process. And I feel like we came up with good things under the pressure, but it was, it's been hard. Like it's just now that this record is out, like starting to feel like lightening up, even though we've just got off five months of tour, but that whole time there's been constant stuff going on other than just preparing the second release. Yeah. And her and Anthony had actually had the same idea independently of each other, use the animators to make a cover that has a lot of different, images and that's colorful and that our main reference we, we were thinking of covers like funkadelic cosmic slop cover but mm-hmm. there's several covers that i can think of ones we weren't even using but that i think of in that same category like frank zapp and the mothers of invention had an album called one size fits all it's got like a couch and it's got a cigar and it's got you know some outer space themes like just these kind of cartoon-like covers. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it, it seemed like that idea fit in really well with what the vibe had turned out to be of the second album, kind of more colorful. So they put that together, and we actually made two covers. There's one for the indie record stores that there's a limited amount of, and then there's the cover for the, uh, the, the normal cover. And those are two completely different covers. Cool. How do you think about sequencing an album? I guess I think of it on a lot of levels. Like it was, that's why we had to do the voting that we did was just because like we'd recorded like 48 songs that we had finished vocals to. And uh, I knew that at the most, you know, only like 34 were going to be able to be released on two, you know, double record 
sets. So that was really hard when you don't even know what what songs the two albums are going to consist of, you know. But for sequencing an album, I have certain things like the first song has to sound like a first song, the last song has to sound like a last song. And, you know, the middle of the album should feel like the middle, The you know, the it should feel like it's gradually revealing something. And it's always worked out working in collaboration with you and with the other guys that, like, some of my favorite songs have gone towards the end of albums, even though we do try to stick some of the best songs in the front. Like, I always feel like the end of an album should really be delivering things that you didn't expect from the whole rest of the album. There, right. It should still be revealing itself on the fourth side. For sure. When you think of it in vinyl, when you think of it as four sides, it's not the end of, you know, yes, it's the end of the album, but it's the beginning of the last part because of the experience of the vinyl. Yeah. Vinyl changes everything. Yeah. I always thought of, you know, growing up with vinyl, I always thought of albums as two sides and, you know, there's the first side has an ending and then the second side starts and then that has an ending. Yeah. And in streaming it's not like that it's just one long album yeah and it's just different it's just a different way of thinking about it and but the way most people digest it now is the streaming way but there is something to the art of the sequence based on the vinyl there's like a tried and true feeling about that most of the things that i stream that i originally heard on vinyl i don't mind that there's not a side break you know, from the A side to the B side of the album. Yeah. But there's still things that help you sequence the digital version uh, about vinyl, like yeah. the halfway point, like yeah. the end of the second side is usually the end of the halfway point. Yeah. And so it's cool if the album sort of feels like it restarts halfway yeah. through. It's a good effect for the for the last song on the second side to to feel like an ending and for the first song on the third side to feel like a beginning. Mm -hmm. And if it's a CD or a digital download version, that you still sort of get that by the album just seems to rejuvenate itself about halfway through. Yeah, it's interesting for, for artists who've never worked on vinyl, they probably have a whole different relationship to a sequence. And I imagine some of them who really grew up on playlists don't even think of a sequence as anything. It's just bunch of songs because you can kind of make your own you know you can make your own version of it yeah in any order you want but there is some magic to it when you hear songs in a certain order you relate to them in a different way and sometimes you know the wrong song in gives you an impression of an album that doesn't start you off on the right foot or the opposite you can hear you can hear a great song and then if you don't like the second song then it's like a feeling of like, oh, maybe it's just one song that I like of this band. You know, that's the first thought that I would have. If, yeah. I, if I love the first song and I don't like the second song, that's there's already a red flag of like, I might not listen as open-mindedly to the third song yeah. after not liking the second song. Yeah. Interesting. Just the psychology of the order of songs. How does that relate to doing it live? How, do, how does sequencing work live? And is there ever... Does it ever not work? Like, do you ever decide on a, an order to play the songs and then you do it and it just doesn't feel right? I guess that's a big difference in our band is because live, Anthony's always been completely in control of the set list. Mm -hmm. The rest of us might make comments. He might even show it to me before we get the copies printed out just, just to get approval or something. 
but we pretty much let him be the master of the set list and that's just always been how it's been whereas when we're making a record it's more collaborative it's kind of impossible for a large group of people to make a sequence because it kind of requires there's still more it's a somebody personal it's a personal decision it. so like yeah. a lot of my memories of doing it like in the old days of me and you, you would, would drive around and you would have me in control of the CD player yeah. going from this song, this ending to that what works. beginning. What, yeah, feeling what works. Does the transition work? Yeah. Does the feeling work? Yeah, there's so many things to keep on your mind. I feel like it's a real multi-level thing. Yeah, yeah. The end of one song has to sound good going into the beginning of another. You yeah. you might make a set list that on paper seems like it would work really well and then as soon as you hear it, it's like none of these transitions are making any sense. You know? Yeah. That's an interesting thing about Anthony, too, and it makes sense because of everyone's job, because he's relying on his voice, there's probably a pacing that makes it able for him to get through a show Yeah, that no one else has that same consideration. Yeah. I'm just thinking there's so many new songs to play. There's 17 new songs that, that is new to the audience. There are the 17 songs that the audience has heard six months ago, and then there's the 40 years of music that the Chili Peppers have made. Yeah. How do you uh, keep a balance of playing things that people are, you know, expecting to hear and all the things you want to play and how are new songs received compared to old songs live? How does that all work? I think compared to other bands who have a history like we have, the new songs get a really good response, nice. but especially Black Summer. You know? Nice. Like, I can't always tell because in my in-ears, I don't have the audience super loud. Like, like they might be might be a large percentage of the audience apply, applauding, and just because of where the mics are that I get the audience from, I might not even hear it. You yeah. know, I take the in-ears out, and I, it's always like much more deafening screaming and stuff than I than I can hear. But yeah, the new songs go over good, but like there's there's certain songs off Unlimited Love that I really wish we were playing that just were some of the more challenging ones to do when we were rehearsing and we never took the risk to play them live. I see. And there's other ones that we did take the risk to play live and only played them a couple of times and then gave up sticking to the ones that were working better. Yeah. You're not worried about mistakes live in front of people. I'm actually way more worried about mistakes when I'm in the studio yeah. or even when I'm rehearsing live, you're not super worried about mistakes. And at the same time, the feeling of a song not working yeah. is fine when you're at rehearsal because yes. you know, it's, it's leading somewhere and you're, yeah. everybody's figuring, Flea's figuring this thing out. Chad's figuring that thing out. I'm figuring out another, but to have that experience live when the four elements aren't functioning as a single unit, yes. it really stands out in a show and it makes you feel really crappy to be up there yeah. when they're not aligned, when you're playing them next to these songs like Californication or other side that you have played a lot and you can really have fun with and everything's always locked together mm -hmm. no matter what. So that's why it's good we have this week of rehearsal coming up so we can start we can work on things that that we were n uh, not feeling up for taking the risk to play, but try to get them together from Unlimited Love and Great. Return of the Dream Canteen <laughs> better. And luckily we have a lot of hits. I guess that's yeah. what helps at this point is that sure. you tend to want to mainly make it about playing the hits when you're playing to 50,000 people a night and Absolutely. stuff. But the new songs are definitely accepted and Black Summer gets 
pretty much equal response to to any of the hits we've had before. So Amazing. people who are there often comment to me after the show, like, wow, people are cheering for your new songs just as much as the old ones. And so I can't always tell, but, but I have got that, gotten that feedback from people. Cool. Yeah. Did you play songs from the new album on the five month tour? Uh, no, we, we just, started playing our first song from from return of the dream canteen yeah we just started playing it just a few shows ago we've played it like three times cool uh, eddie but we rehearsed those a lot when we, when we were rehearsing before the tour started but after five months of being on tour and not playing those songs it just felt too risky to start playing them we wanted to start playing them when the album was announced and but it just, and when the first single came out and stuff, but it just felt like we would have been taking too big of a risk for the energy flow. We just for it to be feel as like, good as it could be. Yeah, yeah, we wanted, we want them to sound good. So it won't take us a lot of rehearsing to get them back under our fingers, but we're going to take like a week before we go on tour again. Great. Makes sense. Just be, again, the volume of material, there's so many songs. Yeah. It's hard to keep everything straight. It's impossible. Yeah. And just live. You've got to find your voice when I'm singing harmonies on the record that could be like 20 voices and then I've got to do it live in one voice. You've got to figure out, okay, what's, which one do I do at this chorus? Which one do I do at the second chorus? You know, you try, what kind of voice do I sing in? And maybe it's not, maybe it's completely dissimilar voice to what I did on the record at all, mm -hmm. just to make it, make it work in the live context. So are there other things like that? Tell me about things that can happen on record that have to be rethought to be able to do it live? I guess for me, multiple guitar parts is often a thing. It's not usually too hard for me to figure out, but that's always something to consider. Whether to, to, to duplicate the effects, sometimes it's better live to just not have any effects. And maybe on the record, I did some modular synth treatment to the guitar that mm -hmm. worked really well for the recording but might not be necessary for live like and might not even be able, be able to hear it, it through the nature of a big sound system outside yeah it's like it's a much it's louder but it's lower resolution i think yeah and there's a lot more natural ambience so things yeah that, you know on the record we were doing all kinds of fancy reverbs and things and on the guitar and certain drum hits and little things like that like Live, we've got so much natural reverberation playing. Generally, we're playing stadiums that yeah. I, I have reverb pedals. I don't even, I think I turned them on like twice per show yeah. or something. And I would, and I, I did a lot of like slapback delay because I was listening to a lot of 50s music when we made the two records. So a good percentage of songs had slapback delay on the basic track of the guitar, but live there was just no point like yeah the the, the arena creates a slap back yeah, yeah. and you can't control the, the, yeah. the speed of it yeah so i got real used to playing the songs dry yeah. you know and like i have a big pedal board and it's generally because there are certain songs that i would like to have the option of using a certain pedal board if we would do that song so i'll have a pedal that's just in case we play one particular song but generally like I don't know, that's how Jimi Hendrix was live. On the records, there's all kinds of signal processing to the guitar and stuff and and to the whole band, really. And and live, it's just either distortion or semi-distorted clean sound. 
and the rest you do with your energy and your you know you have a whole added energy that goes into what you play live that mm-hmm. and the visual part of it the movement and the, the energy transference with the audience that like i feel like all that you use effects and things on a recording to make the recording feel like it has a lift to it that those other things bring that lift live and you don't need to use those decorations tell me more about the energy transference with the audience because that's that's a really interesting feeling most of us who don't get on a stage and play in front of you know tens of thousands of people don't know what that feeling is like how would you describe the difference if you guys are playing in the afternoon in the same venue empty and then when it's packed with screaming people how does it feel different for one thing you're hearing everything at a slower speed than you're actually playing it because you've got adrenaline going i see you think you're playing at one tempo and you're actually playing at a faster tempo than that and so it's something that i remember early on when chad was in the band in like 89 we started really zoning into it listening to watching videotapes of ourselves or listening to cassettes and we realized wow okay let's yeah everything's too fast like let's let's figure out like how we can how it can sound right to us on stage how to bridge that gap between mm-hmm. between uh, what it appears to be live and what it actually is. Taking into consideration, the audience has probably also got some adrenaline going. For sure. So, so you don't need to try too much to slow it down, but you've got to make sure not to get carried away with yourself live, to be conscious of like, go, if, if it feels even a little fast, you're probably going very, very fast. Yeah. You know? So that's one difference is every you're hearing everything different. I noticed that for the first time when I was a kid, I used to go running and I'd be listening to music all day and then I'd go running and then I'd come back to my room and be doing like sit-ups and stuff and and I'd put a record on and it sounded too slow and I, and I had I couldn't account for it. I didn't understand what it was that was happening, but then I remembered it later when we noticed that live everything was faster. So it's you're going faster than your normal perception of time. Mm-hmm. So that's one difference. And I think you also play, you play harder. And like, I've always played completely differently live than I do on records, like on records like Californication, and by the way, in particular, like I was really playing in the style that I felt served the songs well. And that I felt like I was doing something with rather than a blues kind of basic sense of melody or a rock basic sense of melody i was listening to synth pop a lot and i see that style of melody that sort of begins with craft work and continued into the 80s with depeche mode and things like that being its own specific form of melody and i was trying to apply that a lot to the music that we were doing while still having a rock energy and so i was playing in a in a way that it had a kind of a simplicity in common with that kind of music you play melodies that that try to say a lot with with every note being in its perfect place, but creating a sort of a shape with the notes and uh, not so much putting a lot of expression into the notes, but trying to find notes that paint a sort of a good picture in the song and carry on for the melody with another, when he's not singing, carry that on with another melody that's just as catchy as what he's doing. But live throughout those times, particularly by the way, I was playing live like in a very like flashy, putting a lot of expression into it way. It's just that's what the audience brought out of me. I couldn't keep the same kind of restraint 
live that I that I could for uh, for the studio. We have to pause for a quick break, and then we'll be back with more from John Fashante and Rick Rubin. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire, part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat.
We're back with more from Rick Rubin and John Frusciante. What is your pre-show ritual like? I have all these ways of, of doing scales that are creative. When I was a teenager, I would just play them in the normal way you play them or a couple of variations of that. But as I've gotten older, it, it's a way of putting my creativity into my instrument that has nothing to do with the sound that comes out. Because my playing, I'm, I really believe in the philosophy of you play what's, what sounds good. You don't, you don't play something because it's physically interesting or anything like that or impressive or anything no. like that. So I, I have these warm-ups that are really based on, okay, let's forget about the sound that the instrument makes. What's, what's doing something unusual with the fingers that they're not accustomed to doing? And, I see. and how can I play games with my brain with the exercises that teach me things about the nature of the 12-note system that we all use? Yeah that's going to be challenging for my fingers as well as for my brain. And so over the years, just because I, I do it all the time, I did it a lot, even when I wasn't in the band for the 10 years that I wasn't in it. I, it's just, it's interesting to me to look at notes in these various ways. So I've come up with a whole series of, of things that are challenging and that I always learn from having to do with the organization of notes in relationship to scales and different kinds of scales. And I'm just always improving on it. No, I, I'll get little inspirations from it from like, I'll watch, you know, a guitar instruction thing by John McLaughlin or Alan Holdsworth. I, I watched one John McLaughlin thing. I got, I think that got me through like six years of practicing. And wow. then, and then one Alan Holdsworth thing, like wow. went to the next five years. Like I, I see, I see what they're talking about in there. And then it, it makes me think of new ideas yes. about, about how to approach scales and exercises just from little thing. One little thing they say might, might give me a whole stream of ideas that like I'm doing the same thing every day. And a year later I get the idea, oh, but what if I did it this way? What if, what if I add, uh, what if I twist it in this direction or something? If, if I give you a guitar, could you give me a demonstration of just how that works? I could try. Yeah. Let's try. I'm, I'm curious to hear it. Okay. So here's an example. Uh, with scales, if we if we do something like take four notes, and I'm playing them now with no accents, it's four notes. But if now I'm going to start accenting it in threes. And if you look at that, the accents once you start doing that pattern, the accents went lowest note, highest note. Second highest note, third highest note, fourth highest note. It creates a pattern. You've got four notes, and let's call this one one, two, three, four. But if you play them in threes, the pattern winds up being four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. And that's just something that exists in nature, having to do with the relationship of rhythm and melody. Cool. So so if we take the same four notes yeah. and and instead play them in fives, like it's a four notes, but we go So again, we wound up with the same accenting pattern of it went from this note, this note, to this note, to this note, to this note. It keeps going in kind of in a circle, yeah. you know? And again, if we take three notes and divide it into sevens, then we go... So 
Sorry. So, so yeah, it's hard. Yeah, like that, it, it seems exhausting. Also, yeah. So, so, so that's just that's trying to show like show it in in one in one position. Yes. Um. So you do that in scales is what I do. So I, I'll take like a series of notes, like say going down in sevens. So that's just going down in sevens. And there's a certain interval jump if you're going, if you're playing a seven note scale and you're going down in sevens, you're always jumping up a sixth interval, whether it's a minor or major. Six, up a six, up a six. So there's this shape that you see in it. That's the distance that you're that you're that you're jumping up every time you go down in sevens on a seven note scale at, that's you know in this case a major based on a major scale so now i'm going to go down in sevens but i'm going to i'm going to accent in fives <laughs> so It's so difficult, especially with numbers like fives, where it's not like uh, the even numbers seem to feel more comfortable. Yeah, if you do it in sevens or threes or fives, your picking hand is going is going down for accent, then up for an accent, then down for an accent, up for an accent. So that's another good part of it is to get your upstrokes feeling like as solid accents as as your downstrokes. So that's like a good example of the kind of things that I do. But, you know, it, it gets harder and harder the larger the the distance is and the bigger the numbers are. Like I generally, when I practice, I'm probably staying in numbers under 10, both in terms of... Number of the, notes and accents. Maybe 11, but it's, it's hard to go like, go down 11 notes and, and accent in 13s. There's a pattern to it, but it's much... It's, it's really it hard to do. It, you're, to, it fucks yeah. you up. You, yeah. the, you start hearing the notes yeah. as di- di- as dictating the rhythm, yeah. and that's what the exercise in general helps you to not do. Is to, for a moment while you're practicing, disconnect the rhythm from the pitch. Yes. Don't let the pitch determine the the rhythm. I'm pretty sure from all the music that I've learned and everything that melodies that are interesting and melodies that don't just feel average have interesting ways of acting in a way that's rhythmic separately from the from the melodic that the two yeah. areas are sort of functioning independently of each other yet in harmony but that's with what each makes other. it catchy it's not it's yeah. not just the order of the notes it's an order of the the order of the notes and where the accents are yeah and 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 how the rhythm relates to the note some when you think of like songs like mary had a little lamb or something it's almost like the notes and the rhythm are just a hundred percent like lined up with each other. Yeah. And and when you get more, you know, melodies like the Beatles or something like that, where where you wonder where this melody came from, it's because it doesn't have such an obvious relationship between the rhythm and, and the notes. There's something creative going on in their spin on it. So so that's why I feel like those exercises do have an effect on one's sense of melody and one's awareness of because you normally you can't you don't a note is the rhythm and the note and it's where it falls in the 
in the bar and where what bar that is in the song, all those things make a note what it sounds like to us. Yeah. Like I said, it's not music. It's purely for the physical part and yeah, the brain's the conception brain. of yeah. the relationships of notes to each other and the relationship also of rhythm to notes. Yeah. To me, practicing and making music, they're these two completely separate things. I don't feel that you need to use what you practice in your music or apply it in any way. It's really, they're two separate art forms. And I think you should look at practicing yeah. as its own sort of cool art form. So when you do your rehearsals, do you do it with an acoustic or an electric? Electric. Electric, because it's the guitar you're going to be playing or it's yeah, like the guitar or it's you're like be the guitar I'm going to be playing. So I, I start out with various exercises and scales and then I move on to playing along with things that I like. And I try to play along with certain things because they're good for rhythm guitar, certain things because they're good for bending and doing vibrato, things that have solos. So I like playing along with, uh, I have a lot of things memorized right now that are, they're mostly things that people improvised on a record and or live. And, and so I have these solos by some of my favorite rock guitar players. And usually in my life, I just, learn a stream of things and I gradually forget things yeah. as I learn new things. But at the moment it seemed best for my fingers if I were to only on show days play things that I know really well that I can play that I should be able to play without making mistakes. So I've got a, a number of things memorized that I can do that with. And I like to spend a couple hours doing that before the show. Nothing is as crazy as what I do on stage. Cause a lot of what I do on stage I wouldn't even know how to figure it out myself. Yeah. Uh, it's other... just pure, a pure energetic transmission. Yeah, a lot of people would call it sloppy because you can't hear. It doesn't so much sound like note, 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 note. Uh, a lot of the time there's some weird noise that you're like, well, I'm not sure where his fingers were there. But like, I really like the sound of those things and yeah. I like playing like that. Yeah. You know, If um, you were to listen to it, could you tell what you were doing or, or maybe Only not to even a degree. you? Only to and a degree. And I can do it with most any guitar playing. Like, yeah. like Frank Zappa is a guitar player who I would put in that category. Like a lot of what he plays, I think it's a matter of opinion, what he's actually playing. Two people could figure it out and do it two different ways. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's just not clear enough. Some of it is. And yeah. then he goes into a section where it's just like, well, we can only guess what he's doing at that point. And in his case, does it always sound intentional or no? He definitely would admit to making what he called mistakes. To me, there's no mistakes. The sound he made is the music, and there's nothing it should have been, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he may have been trying to do something he, different. Yeah, he was trying to do something different, and he doesn't quite make it. And that happens with these guitar players who go out on a ledge, like Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix. They all have sections like this that it becomes hard to be sure exactly what they're doing, but I try to learn things like that. Yeah. But a lot of what I'm playing live is stuff that it, there's no level of confusion yeah. about it. And it just, it's a little beneath the level of what I'm going to do when I get on stage. But I find that if I do it for a couple hours, that prepares me. It's like a meditation. And it's like, if I find that I'm making mistakes on something that I've played a zillion times perfectly yeah. and I'm forgetting it to some degree or my fingers aren't cooperating with me it shows me i need to bring an extra focus to that thing so cool yeah it's so interesting 
Yeah, I asked because because some of the craziest solos that I've ever seen somebody transcribe yes. are, and this is how I learned how to read music when I was a kid was because I was so fascinated by the rhythms in them. Where Steve Vai had done these transcriptions of Frank Zappa's guitar solos, wow. and there was a whole book of them. Wow! And I had no interest in reading music, but when I learned that there was this way of writing down when people are speeding up and slowing down across the bar line, and when they're going into grooves that seem completely separate from what the drummer is doing but do have a relationship it was fascinating to me and it was really the only way to learn a lot of frank zappa's written music was to understand how it was written down because mm -hmm. he would use those kind of rhythms both in his playing and in his writing so i learned how to read i just went directly to what turned out to be like the hardest stuff to you know to sight read and consequently i never learned to sight read but i asked steve Vai because I think a lot about polyrhythms. I use them a lot in my electronic music. I have machines I can program where you're playing like five against four evenly or seven mm -hmm. against three or these strange ways of, of rhythmically relating to the other instruments. So I'd, I'd given a lot of thought to it for so many years and I asked him, does he think of them as objectively accurate? And he said, it was a matter of interpretation. Yeah. When you're writing rhythms like that and the drummer is not playing to a click, but he's himself is slightly speeding up and slowing down all mm -hmm. the time. It's very hard to say the rhythm right here is, uh, the rhythms are all based on a 13 evenly across four quarter notes. Yeah, There's no way to accurately, to be able to, to objectively say, yes, that is the rhythm. Because as long as when you're dealing with rhythms that are that delicate to play accurately, the slightest little bit of timing change in the drummer, even a really good tight drummer, makes the difference to where it's not what you what you conceived it to be. Mm -hmm. I think all that studying of Frank Zappa's music that I did when I was a teenager did a lot of good for me because it showed me that not everything needs to line up perfectly rhythmically with everybody else the way most people tend to play. And melodies don't have to be this straightforward thing in order to be accessible or to be catchy that 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 you can be doing little twists with them all the time and taking all those liberties that he was taking like and studying them i just i just feel like gave me a sort of a unique outlook for a pop musician on you know on what notes are there for and what what you're able to do with them. I feel like even in the simplest things that I do, I feel like that familiarity I have with doing things in an unusual way winds up making the melodies unusual, you yeah. know, in some weird way. Do you feel like if it happened that you were playing a concert and it came time for solo and if for some reason something happened where the audience could still hear you perfectly, but you couldn't hear yourself at all, could you play a solo without hearing yourself at all and have it be coherent for the audience. I think so. You know, it, that kind of happened at the LA show that we did a few months ago. I got out on stage and there was nothing in my ear monitors at all. They were they were silent. And so I went over to the side of the stage and it just sounded like a mess up there. We because we all use in-ear monitors, we what it actually sounds like on stage is pretty incoherent. So I went to the side and was telling my guitar tech, telling the sound man what's going on they're watching them try to solve the problem and i went into playing a, a two-handed tapping eddie van halen style uh solo yeah barely could hear what i was doing but after the show my my wife's cousin said uh 
that solo at the beginning of the show. Wow. Incredible. But yeah, I, I could barely hear what I was doing. But I do that kind of thing when I'm, it's part of my practicing that when I warm up, I, I also do things like that. Like just doing this at every part of the neck that, that, that I, just doing these trills like everywhere that I can. Did Eddie actually invent that technique? No, he invented that use of it like nobody did it sounding like what he sounded like doing yes. it there's certain details about patterns like like uh like nobody was doing that but steve hackett from genesis was doing that using his right hand finger to tap notes and frank zappa was doing the same thing but using the pick rather like mm -hmm. that's what it sounds like with your finger that's with a pick. And so he was calling that bagpipe guitar. And that was a good, both those examples were a good three years before uh, Van Halen. Did and do you know if those record. influenced Eddie? Like, did he hear those and then come up with his way of doing it? He or claimed he came up with his on the toilet <laughs> while he was taking a shit. It's a good story. But he went backstage at a Steve Hackett show and told Steve Hackett that he got the idea for it from being at a Genesis show and mm. saw him doing it. So. I tend to believe that, but Steve Hackett's definitely doing it on Selling England by the Pound, the Genesis album. He's definitely doing that technique. You can hear it. Yeah. When you're soloing live, how much do you take into account the recording version of the solo? Usually not at all. Yeah, like sometimes if I'm in a certain mood, I'll do a variation of it. Like I'll, I'll do the same basic idea or I'll start with the same idea. But usually that's even how it is on the record. Like people think of the solo on a record as being the one, but it was actually, I had an idea of how I would start it and that was all I had. And that was the this, one that you picked that day or may have been the only one you played in some cases. Like just to be prepared for the studio, I often have an idea for a beginning and I yeah. figured the rest I'll just get through and it'll be reflected in the vibe of the moment. So live a lot of the time, I might start that the same way that I did in the studio, start with something that that's pre written and then go in go off in another direction because it's always going to feel differently depending on the groove of how flea and chad are playing to play the same solo seems like it, it would be unnatural when you have a song in your head let's say you're bringing a song into the band you've worked on at home has there ever been a case where you come up with a like a part that you're going to play a, a rhythm a rhythm piece mm -hmm. and you play it for the band and they join in and when they join in, it instigates you to change what your original part was based on what they're playing. Oh, yeah, completely. And and Anthony's always the last part of that. Like, like I don't really know exactly what I'm going to do and, and, or so how it's going to be groove, how the, how the groove is going to be put into it and all that uh, until I hear what he's thinking. But there is a certain amount of, I bring in a song, if the drums that Chad aren't, playing don't sound right i might not have any idea of what the drums are supposed to be going yeah, yeah, yeah. in but when i hear the wrong thing yeah it feels like this doesn't make this thing do what it wants to yeah. do yeah you know we often experiment yeah we, we work on that and so there's there's always a lot of healthy exchange with chad with flea that that's been more difficult we've had rough patches of working together because I had an idea of what I thought should be the the low note of the chord and that yeah. kind of thing. And he just hears a different and, way. Yeah. In. But, you know, we, we managed to work that out always. When he brings in a song either on piano or on bass, do you immediately know what to play? 
quite often, especially if it's a sort of modal funk-based kind of thing that doesn't involve chord changes, uh-huh. a lot of the time the first thing I play when, when I come in is what winds up being on the record. But with piano, with with those songs that he's brought in on piano, I, I definitely have to like put some thought into it and ask him what the chords are. We had a real nice exchange because in the old days, neither of us really communicated having anything to do with theory. Yeah. It was more showing the person what you're playing and then yeah. responding to that. But as time's gone by and he went to music school and stuff, for for this new stuff, we would talk about the chord. He would, if he didn't know the name of the chord or one of us doesn't know the name of the chord, we uh, tell the other one what the intervals that it has in it are. And when it's in, when it involves chord changes, that's really where the trouble, where where it, where it involves more. It's just you got to figure it out. Yeah, you got to take some time. Yeah. But yeah, usually the songs that our jam style song songs that come from us just jamming with yeah. each other. That's usually pretty automatic. And, but sometimes, you know, like some songs on the new album were like, we did a jam and the first thing we played is one song. And what we went into 10 minutes later wound up being a completely other song. Like we landed on something through playing the first thing that wound up being a whole other tune. So, so, cool. so there's this automaticness of fitting yeah. together when yeah. it's, when it's things that are in one key but but when it's moving around a lot it requires some thought both for him to come up with bass parts for me to come up with guitar parts if there's a difficult chord progression presented to you on piano would your instinct first be thinking about how to interact with it or would it be to play along with it like to to double it first to know what to do off of it from piano, I can't do that because he's got he can play more notes than I can on I the see. guitar. On piano, it's so easy, for instance, to play a chord that's almost everything in it is a whole step away from each other, yes. a very close distance. Yes. On guitar, you just can't do it. You can't I see. You've, you've got to take notes out of the chord in order to be able to physically play it. I see. So So you can't really duplicate it on the guitar. You've no. Do, right. Yeah, not if it has too many notes in it. He's doing a lot of chords that have 10 notes in them. I see. Don't even have that many strings or yeah. that range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it comes down, as always, to doing what you hear in your head, you know. Yeah. But for chords to do what you hear in your head, you have to have a good idea of yeah. what that's each chord is. That's interesting, because that's one of the things I was thinking was when you hear something and you respond to it, are you responding with the guitar first or are you humming it in your head and then playing it? Would the singing version be faster than the guitar version to sing the idea or no? Yeah, it's an interesting question because it it comes back to that thing that we touched on in the last episode having to do with that period of time where I was seeing music very clearly in my head with synesthesia or some form of synesthesia. And even though I don't have that the way I did when I was, you know, uh, in my early 20s, I do see things and I can see... For instance, like if I'm playing live, the beginning of a guitar solo, I'm not humming it. I just see it. Wow. When you say you see it, you don't see it like written music. No. Would you describe it as shape? How would you describe it? That's the funny thing about it is it's not visual. At least I don't think it is, but it's in an instant. Like I might see two bars of a, of a guitar solo of the way I'm going to start the solo. of. I might see the first two bars in my head as a single picture, like as a, 
But how would you describe... In a a single instant, I see those two bars. But when you say see the two bars, tell me what you're... Like, describe what you're seeing. What do the bars look like? I don't know how... I I really... It's it's Are there not words for me? No, it's interesting. It's one of those things that... Because I could do this kind of thing so good when I was when I was like 20 and I was literally seeing everything like yeah. as a movie that like you'd ask me like you'd, you'd have the idea like we would be working on Soul to Squeeze and I remember you saying you should write a guitar intro just a guitar only intro for this song and I would just see a picture in my head like a visual picture like a movie of the song and I would think okay what would be the right movie for the intro and then I would just see the movie and then play the feeling of Almost that like the score, like you're scoring an image. Yeah, but it's not an image that you could necessarily describe. It not necessarily, but it very well could have been in those days. I they see. were, they were, there were things that were very clear, but they always there was this interaction between the music and the visuals in my head. To where, if I was hearing music, I saw a visual that perfectly represented that music, and it it could be abstract shapes in black and white or it could be color just like a movie or you know it was and so as time went by and i went californication time i started making music again but without that clear visualness i still had the same ability to see the feeling of music in my head yet there was no picture to it but i could Mm -hmm. see it Mm -hmm. i i can only describe it as seeing because it's there in my head and it's clear and I see the connection between that and what I would play to do that feeling. Yeah. But sometimes there's a visual thing, but it's more like spaces than it is like objects. Okay. And when it's you say spaces, like the, do you mean spaces between things or a visual space, like a, a location? I'm not really saying that it's anything that I could expect anybody to be able to draw or something. Yeah. It's just the absence of objects. I see. As opposed to... Objects. It's a. It's something like you seeing what's missing. You don't have something. What do I, I'm curious. <laughs> just as you're asking me these questions, you must have something like no, this. No, I don't know. I'm trying. I'm trying to visual. I'm trying to visualize what you're experiencing. Right. And I'm just looking for any clues to. I'm, I want to see it. You know, yeah. I want to. I want to see it. Yeah. Pretty mysterious. I think to I told you. I think I told you when I was gassed at the dentist's office. I told you that story uh-huh. a long time ago. Needle phobic. I got gassed to have a blood test and. I was listening to music and they gassed me and I could see the music. I could see 3D images. And I remember thinking, oh, now I know how to do this. Because like now that I've been exposed to it, yeah, I don't need laughing gas to do this. I see what this is. Right. And then I've never been able to do it again. Even not on laughing gas, I can't, I've never been able to do it again. Right. But in the that first time, I was able to clearly see. And it was so cool. Yeah. It was so cool to be able to see it. Yeah, that's how it was for me real consistently from like 1990, 91, 92. It, it's mysterious to me that that I was able to make music just as colorful and 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 emotional and and uh shapely and all these yeah, things without it. Without it. Yeah. And my, I can only say that even though I don't see the visuals yeah. like I did, they must be there just below the level of consciousness yes. because the effect of what that did remained with me when you could see it maybe it was almost like training wheels like it had to be that clear for whatever it was that was showing it to you for you to be able to see it and then once you built the ability 
to see it, you could still see it without the visual there. Right. Yeah, it seems to me that that is, that that is what happened. And uh, I'm sure there are people who just go on seeing it their whole lives, but it didn't work that way for me. But yeah, there are a lot of ideas. Don't you get it? Say, for instance, you're looking through movies. You're thinking of watching a movie and you look through your DVD collection. There's nothing, nothing's leaping out at you. All of a sudden, one DVD, that's the one you want to watch. Yes. What happens in your head at that moment? I would say it's a, it's a feeling of the energy in my body raises. It's similar to when we're playing in the studio and it goes from a okay take to a great take. There's this feeling of just like, I feel this lift of energy in my body that makes me want to, sometimes makes me want to laugh. Sometimes it makes me want to lean forward and like listen closer. I would say it's interest. It's like you could be sitting around and like mindlessly not thinking and then something grabs my attention. Right. Nothing changed. Volume's not any louder. You know, it's like, it's not like the music came on. Music's been playing for hours, but all of a sudden, like my attention gets drawn to this thing. Right. And um, it's this wave of energy, I guess is the way to say it. Right. And see, for, for me, that's a part of it, but another part of it is there's something that presents itself to my mind that it's as if it's a condensed form of the feeling of that thing. Yeah. So like if if I'm looking through my movies and Goodfellas is the movie I want to watch, the feeling of Goodfellas comes over me in my head. And before, when I saw things visually, that would have been a much more extreme, like somehow visual concoction that's that I literally see. But in this case, I don't see it, but I feel it in my yeah. brain. Yes. I'm going to, next time that I'm choosing something to watch, I'm going to really pay attention to what's going on in my body to try to understand what I'm feeling. You know, I know, I know the feeling of when yeah. I get excited. Oh, there it is. Yeah. That feeling. Yeah. I'm going to try to uh, tune into that more. It's interesting that you say in my body. Because, yeah, because for me, it's more like, it's more my head. Yeah, for me, it's not, it, it's definitely not in my head. Right. It's not a thinking thing yeah. for me. It's a whole body feeling draw. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's what makes me think it's still left over. It's simple things like that. When I'm looking through my record collection, I see the record that I want to hear. The feeling of that record is produced in my head. Yeah. As if in one moment, I were feeling the entire listening experience yeah. of listening to that record, the sum of that, the yeah, feeling it's like of that a hologram record in a way, itself. like where, where the, the each, any aspect of it contains the whole. Yeah. That's yeah. Really so, so, th- so that ends up relating to what we were talking about in terms of when flea plays a baseline, I see in my head, what would be the counter to that? What would be the balancer to that? Where, where are the holes in that? And, I see a picture of it in my head of what what would balance his baseline, and I just start playing, and that balance is what I play. Uh, so I'm not thinking of notes in advance, but sometimes I do. But it's in that way that I that I was saying, where like I see them, but it's faster than real time. I see the whole pattern that I'm going to repeat in an instant. Yeah. You know, we're we're only really taking note of what's happening consciously all the time, but I think. Just as much as dreams are 
are this world that we don't really understand. I think everything in life is that. There's yes. some sort of subconscious yes. uh, echo that's taking place to what we're seeing consciously. Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing consciously barely scratches the surface of what's going on. Yeah. There's too many data points. We can't take it all in. Yeah. And, and you know, that period of time that I mentioned in the last show where I had several months when I first got off drugs completely of just being kind of bored during that period of time when nothing was happening, I was seeing the music that I might make with the band in my head. I guess in some cases I might've actually been hearing music in my head, but a lot of it was just the overall concept of the way that the things would relate to each other. And I'm just bored, like just sitting there, like not not doing anything, not excited about life or anything. But oftentimes when there's nothing going on, your subconscious reveals itself to you in these ways. Like that's the time when it does it. If you're constantly having information in front of you all the time or constantly doing things to entertain yourself or to combat that or boredom. distract yourself. Yeah. yeah, like oftentimes you're not going to be able to to be in touch with the subconscious that has its own movement and that has its own reality. And a lot of the time, it, it seems like in that particular case, like that period that I thought nothing was happening with me my life was going nowhere yeah. it actually had a huge effect on the on something very productive that i did which was making that record you know would you describe it as a premonition i guess so i guess i've had a lot of a lot of those in my in my life it's like you can imagine something and then it ends up coming to pass yeah like i see something yeah. sometimes i see things and things that they have nothing to do with me. And then all of a yeah. sudden I see the real thing or I hear the real thing. Yeah. And I realize, oh my God, I heard that in my head like 10 years ago. Yeah. Like that Dice album that you brought over in my house the day the laughter died part two. Yeah. There's moments on that that I swear I heard in my head when I was 14 years old, yeah. like yeah, yeah. seven years before it came out. I, I know. I understand that feeling because sometimes I'll hear something and there'll be, and I know I've never heard it before or it's, it wasn't even possible to hear before, but there's such a, feeling of remembrance when I'm listening to it or just uh, a sense of, yeah, that's how it goes. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I already know it. Yeah. A knowingness. Yeah. There's, and and there's some kind of connection between memory and creativity. There's a connection between them yet creating something new. Isn't the same thing as remembering something. No, but no, in some ways that's, that's, it's useful (laughs) <laughs> that it's not the same because yeah. we remember something and then we make it and then we realize oh that that's not what it was at all. It's like it is something new. Yeah, but there's a connection between the functions in the brain, mm-hmm. and and it it shows in sometimes like the Beatles had that thing with Ringo. Uh, they would make fun of him because every time he tried to write a new song, it was a song that already existed. He thought he was writing a new song, yeah. and they would start falling on the floor laughing because it was. A, it was a Jerry Lee Lewis song or whatever. Yeah, and you yeah, just yeah. didn't realize it was. And oftentimes when, when I get an idea for writing a song, it feels like I'm remembering something. It yes. doesn't feel like I'm coming up with something new. What's turned out to be the most beneficial kind of practicing for me is that I'm just creating a sort of an encyclopedia of what has been done. Yes. And that's all being stored in my subconscious. I learn if I like a song I learn how to play the guitar of it. I might even learn how to play the keyboard of it and the bass of it. And this information is all stored in my head. So when I write, I'm drawing from that storeroom. Of all the stuff that, of all the combinations, 
that you've ever heard yeah. over the course of your life and that you get to a stage where, okay, I have this and I want to go to this and there's somewhere and you may, it may be conscious or unconscious. Yeah. Like this sound going to this sound feels satisfying. Yeah. And maybe that's because there's a something you heard 25 years ago that you liked and lodged, but don't, rem- you know, don't remember the specifics of it. Yeah. Like if you eat a good meal, you feel satisfied. Yeah. And the same, when you hear a good piece of music, there's this feeling of satisfaction. Yeah. And you know the different elements, all of the elements over the course of your life that have given you that feeling of satisfaction are all at your disposal to draw from, whether you remember them or not, they're somehow in there. Yeah. They change us. Yeah. For me, that's the productive thing is just to have them all in there and you're like doing this mixing and matching thing. It's really more your subconscious doing it. Because like, for instance, like we were talking about Under the Bridge, like when Anthony had that vocal and I basically had the idea to just do something starting with him in a major key, just because what he was doing seemed sad and I wanted to cheer it up a little bit because aside from it being soft, that was another aspect to it that was weird for us. Our music was generally uplifting. Yeah, and 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 it was a sad song. Yeah, if I sang the melody of that song, you'd hear the chords in your subconscious you'd hear the melody now you know now that right you know now. what it's supposed to be yeah, yeah, but yeah, when yeah. he was first singing it we didn't know of it. course it wasn't it wasn't super clear whether it, it was could have major. been anything yeah yeah it could have and been so anything. so i know that that was my thought going into it aside from the Jimi hendrix thing was just the thought like let's lighten this up a little bit you know and and when it moved to a minor key for the chorus of the song and the idea to have that part start on the later than the one instead of the one i drew from this song that i knew in my head at that moment i could have thought of any song but i thought this would be a nice little moment to have this space right before the court you know in a lot of ways that's why i think learning a lot of songs is really the only way to to develop your skill doing it because when it's happening it's not like a skill that you you know how to use the hammer in this particular way so you use it the skill is like sort of giving your subconscious the ability to be able to offer you the right thing at the right time. Yes. You know, and sometimes it doesn't. And giving it loads of options to choose from. Exactly. Loads of options. Yeah. Do you remember the song that inspired you to want to put that in under the bridge? Right. Do you remember what it was? Yeah. Can you play it? Okay, so... um, Do you mind if I play... A whole verse and a whole chorus. You can play anything you want. As I, long I, can, as you I can do it instrumentally if it's no good that way, but uh, but it seems. I'm all anything you want to play is fun. Okay, I, I like I'm to gonna listen. try this. Yeah. Um, so the Joe Jackson song goes one, two, three, four. Is an actor all they say or maybe worse They say he changed his name Cause someone with the same name made it first 
His girlfriend comes to stay We hear her screams and think that they rehearse So maybe it's a play And maybe someone's really Okay, now I'm just gonna play it once, just um, guitar. One, two, three, four, one. Is it that long? Yeah, it's a it's a long, it's a really it's a long, long break. break. Yeah, it's also interesting the phrasing. The bum 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 after space sounds like it's answering something. It doesn't sound like it's saying something. Yeah, that's that's the way that that chorus generally goes. With his, it's a long. Uh, it's just a stop and then goes into the chorus, but with ours, it's a. Uh, it's a sustain, right? It, yeah, it's, yeah. We hold, we hold the chord, which came from this, which even that in itself came from another song. There, there's this T Rex song called "Rip Off" that goes like. It's funny. It's called "Rip Off." It's funny. It's called. I, I really at the time that was a joke in my yeah, mind. Like yeah. it would be cool if I ripped off "Rip Off." But yeah, but yeah like it, it, it has this cycle in the verse that goes like. Uh, So, so I always thought that was cool that, that yeah. the verse had this break in it where the guitar just played this major seven chord. Yeah. So in ours, when we got to the end of the to the to the verse and And that's the happy verse. Yeah. And and then when he got to the end of the singing, rather than just going straight into the chorus, I, when we went And then the Joe Jackson. Yeah, yeah, but but instead of doing that, I went. Yeah. Which sounds more to me that that sounds more introspective than the verse did. Yeah, yeah, like like it was almost like in the in the writing of that song, we we brought in the darkness gradually. Like yeah. to me, the end of the song, the. Yeah. 
that's the darkest part of the song yeah you know like like that was the feeling to me when anthony first brought it in but to, you got to it instead of opening with it exactly like yeah, yeah, like yeah, like to gradually and and which gave it the effect of somehow feeling triumphant rather yeah. than feeling like a, or a release some kind of a release yeah rather than feeling some kind of rather than it feeling like a downer it made yeah. the whole thing made it made the chorus felt like an uplifting thing yeah we we had another song earlier uh on the first album that i did with them knock me down where that it was like uh it's uh i might not be in the right key It, we had we had this thing that went major chord to minor chord, and it's just one of those things that I've no. There's a lot. There's certain songs in history where somebody does that, where I just noticed yeah. that that it, that it's a good feeling, and uh, that's another thing. I ca- because I know so, how to play so many songs, I have things categorized in my head to mm-hmm. where there's all these sort of chord progression. There's a lot of songs that have similar chord progressions, and so I have them sort of. On, in, on some level, maybe not to where I can just play them yeah. right off the bat, yeah. but they're the, pr- the principles at work. Yeah, they're ca- they're categorized in my head as being yeah. oh, that's that type of chord. It's rare that in a rock song from history I would hear a chord progression and I would go oh, that that doesn't fall into any category, yeah. you know. But there are some, especially in progressive rock and stuff. So yeah, like under the bridge was just another attempt at doing the major to minor chord. But taking time with it, and I think Beatles did that too. No, the major to the minor. I'm sure they, they yeah, they definitely did. Like, like, uh, let's see. I was playing along with one the other day. A lot of the time, it's like they already went to a F chord, say, they're in C, and then they went to an F, and then and then they went back to C, and then next time they do an F. it's minor and all of a sudden that gives you a different feeling like it's a chord you've already heard as a major chord but then the second time they go to it it's a it's a minor chord and it changes it yeah yeah. we'll be right back with the rest of john frusciante and rick rubin's conversation after a quick break snag a job is where america goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them 
to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with Rick Rubin and John Frusciante. Can you think of any songs that from the exercise that you showed earlier of the notes and rhythm yeah any songs that you've written that have come from something related to that notes and rhythm technique no definitely can't like i say i, I really i think of practicing you think of it separate it's completely separate i'm yeah. not trying to connect the <laughs> yes, two yes, things yes. i do know that when i'm playing on stage it's not going to stop me from doing a certain thing that I want to do in my solo. If all of a sudden I have to do upstrokes uh, and accent those rather than accenting the downstrokes, yeah. like I'll be able to say whatever that thing is I wanted to say, or if I want to fit a strange amount of notes in the bar, if I want to do, 
if I want to fit seven notes into the four four instead of eight notes or whatever, mm-hmm. like it's natural for me to do that. But other than that, I, I figure it just it gets in there somehow, sure. but I don't for know sure. how. For you sure. know? Okay, this is a good question based on that. You want to get seven notes into a four, you're doing a solo. What happens? You're hearing the music, you start the solo. What dictates what where the next note it goes? Like ha- what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's yeah, like like I'm like you can explain it after why. Yeah. But not in the moment. Yeah. There's no time. Yeah. I I think of it as you're placing yourself in a few points in time at the same time. Like I think if you can do all three of those things at once, be in the past, be in the present and be in the future. Yeah. That that's something like the ideal frame of mind to be to have some kind of a preconception about what you're about to do. Yes. To be in the moment, listening to what everybody else is doing right yes. at the, right in the moment at every point, and also listening to what's just happened. Yeah. I think it's, it involves like a balancing of sort of being in those three points in time at the same time. Mm. If a lot of the time you're only able to listen to what's just happened and you're just judging it every step of the way, you're mm. just going, oh, that sucked. Oh, that wow. was terrible. Wow. Like, like and you can't that get sounds, out of No, that sounds crippling. Yeah, it's bad. That's what it's like when I'm having a bad show. I see. Because I'm just listening to what's already happened. I don't have any idea of what I'm about to do. I see. I'm not in the moment. I I'm, see. I'm, I'm listening to what's already come out and I'm judging it. I see. But ideally, you're in a balance between, between those three points in time. How often does that happen though? Bad show, like for you, a bad show like that. I feel like that doesn't, I've never seen that. But how-, how You probably have seen me really? do it. I, I remember even when we were doing the basic tracks to stadium, I was kind of in that state of mind while we were doing the basic tracks for a week or two. And uh, you just kept telling me like, I kept telling you what I was yeah. experiencing that everything's sounding bad to me. And you were like, you're playing great. It sounds great. <laughs> yeah, you, know? you were. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but like. So I, it's just the, it's your interpretation of what's happening. It's yeah. what's happening inside. It's not- Yeah, I was judging everything as I was doing. It was so important to me to play in a certain way that I wanted to play on that yeah. record. Yeah. I was trying to have a little more of the looseness of live than I'd had on any of our records before and the energy of the live playing. And I, I, I think I'd put too much pressure on myself to where most of the record flowed out really nicely. But the first week or two, I was experiencing a really negative thing where I, I was just judging every moment as it happened successively and I wasn't able to get into the groove. I wasn't able to anticipate it. I wasn't able to be in the moment. And what and do you think shifted it? Cause you said it was for the first it, few weeks. It was a meditation it, thing I did. Oh, nice. Yeah. It, it, Cause it, there was a bad feeling in my stomach that was associated with the mental state. Hmm. And I did a guided meditation with somebody. First I meditated on this thing in my stomach and then I meditated on, he said, there's a secondary part where where you're feeling a similar kind of unease, a similar kind of pain, try to figure out, let's get off the phone and figure out where in your body is that. And I found that it was this spot right here, just my wrist mm-hmm. uh, on the opposite side is the palm of my hand. Yeah. And back of the left wrist. Yeah. It might've been both wrists, but mm. it was very subtle. I would have never even noticed that there was a feeling there. But yeah. when I tried to separate myself from the feeling in my stomach, it was there and so I meditated on that for a long time. And then I got on the phone with him again. And then he, then he said, there's a third point. 
you know, I can't remember what it was, but I yeah. went to what maybe it was the throat or something, yeah, whatever, whatever it was. was. And eventually a whole explosion of thoughts came out about a friendship that I'd had when I was young that went bad. Wow. That was followed by a period of time of me intensely trying to play guitar in a way that impressed people. I see. And the way I intended to play on that record had a connection with that wow. point in time. That's what I what and I And it was lodged in your body. Yeah. And so I had summed the 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 thing up in that way. All of a sudden all these memories came back of this friendship that went bad and the desire to impress people that was followed. Like before that, I was just more arty, just being creative. After that, I had a determined thing, like I'm going to play in a way that's going to impress people and that nobody's going to be able to tell me I'm not a good guitar player and all this stuff, like, which isn't possible. Like I've heard the people talk shit about the greatest guitar players ever, whether it's Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, yeah. Alan Holdsworth, Eddie Van Halen. Like I've heard loads of people say that they're bad guitarists, yeah. you know, like... So you can't escape it. So I don't advise anybody to ever try to also if you're if you're doing something new or going out on a limb, if you're really going forward, yeah. there are always people who will resist. Always. Yeah. yeah. They have but, no context for it, you yeah. know. So with everything I'd learned about making music for how it sounds and going with your feelings and supporting the your bandmates and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, when we went in the studio to do stadium, I was just kind of like I had this idea that I was going to play in a way that was going to draw more attention to the guitar playing. And I, I think I really had to get my ego out of the way of it. Mm. Like, I feel like that's where the conflict came from that, that caused the pain. Yeah. I had to reel it in a little bit and just get inside the feeling of the songs and not worry about like the playing in a more flashy way was going to have to just come naturally. It couldn't, I had to get that, because that's kind of what you're doing anytime that you're that you're thinking of a of a reaction that you want from people separate from the feeling. It it's just it, it never works. Yeah, it doesn't it work. Works. And and so so that's where I had some intelligent part of me telling myself, you know, this this you can't go down this path. So it was a little conflict. But once I had that memory and saw the relationship between those two things, losing that friend and focusing on being impressive to other people i was able to go back into the record with my stomach feeling relaxed with being able to be completely in the moment without worrying about what people were going to think of it or anything and just uh doing what came naturally cool yeah i'm trying to decide if we want to start talking about the other albums or whether it's better to, to stop and do another one because i feel like again it's going to be long and I feel like we've covered a lot of good ground now. What do mm -hmm. you think? Yeah. I'm, it, and you're around way, for a few weeks, right? I'm I'm here for a few weeks and we can do another one before I leave town. Oh, okay. In person. Sh sure. good. Yeah. You don't I'm, mind coming out? Not at all. Okay, not great. Because I feel like there's so much, again, it's, you know, I never know in the beginning, but once we start talking, it's like there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. And it's funny that we don't, when we're working on stuff, there's not much talk of you know we don't philosophize much we're yeah. you know we have a job to do and we're focused on doing the job yeah. so we rarely just talk about stuff yeah it's fun yeah well, thank you so much for doing this yeah thank again you, always a pleasure talking to you i always learn something it's fun yeah it's a lot of fun talking to you cool so we do this again soon okay cool thanks to john fushante for stopping by shangri-la to chat with rick 
Be sure to keep an eye out on our feed for their next conversation. You can hear all of our favorite Chili Pepper songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, Jennifer Sanchez, our editor Sophie Crane. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to the Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.